Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, stupid, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This has no expiration date. This can be listened to at altitude. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. My name is Brad Listy, and I am sitting in uh, Los Angeles, California, over here at the bottom left side of the United States. How are you today? Are you feeling good? My guest is Anne-Marie Worth Cushon. How's that for a name? Anne-Marie Worth Cushon. She has a debut novel out from $2 Radio, and it is called Nothing. That's the name of it. It's a novel called Nothing. And uh, Anne-Marie and I are going to be talking at length in just a minute. Before we get there, I do have a couple of things that I'd like to go over. First of all, I want to tell you about Sunday. Uh, this past Sunday, just a couple of days ago, uh, what happened to me. It's worth noting. I was in a Book Soup, the local independent bookstore uh, over there in West Hollywood. I drove over on a whim in the afternoon. I had some uh, rare downtime, and I thought that I would uh, spend it 
by relaxing in a bookstore. Thought I would wander around in a uh, casual yet sophisticated manner, browsing. So I spent about a half an hour looking uh, around the store before settling on a biography of the Beatles called Tune In, which is the first part of like this massive three-volume biography called uh, All These Years by a guy named Mark Lewison. And uh, the first installment is called Tune In. And I read a review, uh, a review recently that was really positive, and it occurred to me as I was reading this review how little I really know about the Beatles, aside from their music, like the actual history of it, cultural, personal, otherwise. Because, you know, whether you like the music or not, you know, I think the Beatles probably made the biggest single cultural mark of the past hundred years, maybe ever. I mean, who knows? Who's bigger than the Beatles? Michael Jackson, Elvis. But uh, the point is that I don't know how that happened. I want to know how that happened and why. If such, if, if somebody knows why. <laughs> so anyway, there I am in the bookstore and I pick up this Beatles book and I walk over to the register to buy it. And as I do this, I pause for a moment and I, I take a look at the front table just to see what's there on display, which I will often do in a bookstore. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, glancing around at the, at the front table. Uh, and as I'm doing this, another customer steps up in front of me to buy some books and I barely noticed it. Like it, it, I, I didn't even see it. It just kind of registered on my periphery. Um, because not only was I looking at the books on the front table, uh, you know, I was also reading the Beatles book that I was about to buy. It was open in my hands. So, you know, I was kind of spaced out. It was Sunday. I was moving slowly. And then a few seconds later, I turn around to uh, pay. And on my right... I hear this very distinct, uh, gravelly voice say, Excuse me, did I just step in front of you? <laughs> and uh, I turn, and Tom Waits is talking to me. I swear to God. And, uh, you know, I recognized him instantly. Like the voice, you know, but the face, everything, it was him. And, uh, you know, because I had not seen him prior to that moment in the store, I had no time to overthink it. I just started talking uh, and I was like, uh, no, not at all. I'm just sort of floating here. And so that's what I said to Tom Waits. I'm just sort of floating here. And then uh, from there, I noticed that uh, he was purchasing a very large stack of books, like about 15 books. The only one of which that I, uh, you know, I could make out was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And uh, then I said something like, well, that's a lot of books you got there. You, like you have your work cut out for you. And, uh, he, you know, he laughed and said something like, well, I'm going to have to find someone to read them to me. <laughs> you guys like my Tom Waits impression? So uh, that was basically it. It was some light uh, collegial banter with Tom Waits at a bookstore. And, uh, you know, he paid for his books. 
We told each other to have a nice day, and uh, then he left with uh, with his wife uh, and I believe his son, which I didn't realize until it was all over with. But they were there as well, standing off to the side. So uh, that was it, and I was genuinely excited about it. Like I I don't normally get excited when I see a celebrity. You know, and I mean, like, I like to see celebrities in the wild. That's fun. It's fun to spot somebody when you live in L.A. It's kind of a game. But I don't feel thrilled by it very often. But with Tom Waits, I actually did feel thrilled. In my in my body. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, there you have it. That's my story. Let's do a voicemail real quick, and then uh, we can get going with Anne-Marie worth Kushan. So this is a first. I got a message from Elliot Holt, uh, who has appeared on this program back in episode 191. Uh, She's a terrific writer, and she was very fun to talk with. And uh, it's the first time a past guest has ever uh, left a voicemail. So let's listen to what Elliot Holt has to say. Hi, Brad. This is Elliot Holt. I just listened to your really excellent interview with Laura Vandenberg. And um, I think anyone who listens to that will understand why Laura is one of my favorite people in the world. Um, A great writer, a great friend. Um, Laura was a really good guest, I should say. She was fun. But you were joking in that interview about how you weren't sure what your thing is, that maybe you weren't writing wasn't really your thing. Um, and I'm sure you're a great writer, but I have to say you're also a really extraordinary interviewer and this podcast is really amazing. So maybe, maybe this is your thing. Like maybe you need to have a TV show or a radio show. Maybe NPR needs to snap you up. Um, at any rate, I love the podcast. I hope that you, um, get more and more listeners and, um, it's really a great service. Um, and it's really wonderful thing for those of us who are um, lonely bookish types. These interviews are really, really great, inspiring, funny. I don't know. You always get really good stuff out of people. Okay. So uh, I'm going to stop it right there. Thank you very much, Elliot. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's very kind of you to say uh, those things. And I wanted to respond uh, briefly to what you were saying about my thing. (laughs) Um. You know, I talked about this at length with Laura Vandenberg. And uh, for those of you listening who didn't hear that episode yet, uh, you know, I was on a lot of cold medication all throughout that conversation, which I think added, you know, a certain element. But it's something that I wrestle with. uh, You know, where do I fit into the world creatively? You know, how do I make a living as a creative person in the world? Uh, Is this show art? Like, is it an, I actually ask myself that creatively speaking, is this considered art or is this considered media? Like, what's the distinction, you know? And I guess the point is, you know, I, I've had a similar thought, uh, to the one that Elliot had, you know, I, I like doing this and, uh, it's easy for me to do or, or not easy, but you know, it, it, it's a lot of work. It, it causes me stress from time to time, but it comes naturally in ways that uh, writing fiction perhaps does not. It's less painful to do than staring at a flashing cursor. <laughs> and uh, it's worth asking why that is. 
you know, like uh, for one thing, I'm interacting with people, which is enjoyable and, uh, which enjoy, you know, indulges my uh, natural curiosity about people. I like people and, uh, I like the sense of accomplishment. I get finishing an episode twice a week, sending it out into the world. It makes me feel productive. And then, you know, there's always the possibility that I'm simply lazy. <laughs> um, that's, that's entirely possible. Maybe this is just easier or maybe it, you know, maybe it just comes more easily. And so it's more fun. There are more laughs, etc. cetera. Uh, I don't mean to drone on, you know, I hope this isn't uh, too much navel gazing and, you know, possibly it's relatable to uh, at least a few of you out there, this sense of a uh, creative identity crisis. Coupled with, uh, you know, a strong dose of uh, financial paralysis or something. You know, this is like this complete confusion over how you're supposed to make a living doing anything creative. Writing especially. Uh, but anyway, uh, thanks again to Elliot Holt. I appreciate it. And uh, don't forget, Elliot Holt has a debut novel out called You Were One of Them. And uh, all of you should go buy it right now. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Anne-Marie Worth-Cushon. Her debut novel, once again, is called Nothing, and it is available now from $2 Radio. It's always really fun to catch a, a talented writer at the dawn of her career. And this is where Anne-Marie is uh, right at this moment. So here she is, folks. This is Anne-Marie Worth-Cushon, and her debut novel, once again, is called Nothing. I'm in Minneapolis in, in the bottom, the basement of a um, Cold War-era institutional building um, in this uh, literary journal's little office. Um, my wife, so, is from, my wife is from Minneapolis. It's a good town. Really? Yeah. I, I read I, that you were from Milwaukee, actually. You know, I am. Is that I, right? I was born there. Yeah. And I spent like the first 10 years of my life there more or less. But, um, I like that. I feel, you know, I consider that part of the country, uh, home turf, like Wisconsin. If anyone asks me where I'm from, I always say Milwaukee cause I, I moved around as a kid, but I was born there. So, yeah. So you like cheese and beer. Uh, actually, no, I'm, I don't. <laughs> 
I like no. I like neither of those. You went native when you got to California. Yeah, you, you know, like I used to. I can't eat cheese. It like doesn't agree with me. And then um, I'm not a huge beer guy either. I, I, yeah, I, I feel like half a man. Well, it's good you left because probably if you stayed, you would have been. I don't know, ostracized maybe. Well, no, when I go back, you know, like my wife and I go back to visit her family and it's always sort of like me contorting, you know, but I have very strange, like, you know, I'm vegetarian, um, which I don't think is that strange, but like, you know, it's strange when you're there. And it's also strange when I visit the part of my family that's in the South. And so, you know, I, I, I find yeah. myself constantly apologizing for it and I'm always trying to, I guess I feel uh, bad about it somehow, but I'm trying not to feel bad about it because I don't think it's yeah. any, it's nothing I should have to apologize for. No, certainly not. How long have you been a vegetarian? Uh, since I was like 21 with some like, you know, mild departures, but I'm pretty, I've been that's, pretty. That's pretty serious. That's, that's commitment. Yeah, no, right. I'm into it. I like it. It makes me feel good. And is it ethical or? Yeah. I, I like animals and I don't want to be a, you know, I don't, I, I don't like the part of it where they're getting, you know, factory farmed and butchered and, uh, that part bothers me. And then I also just feel better. Yes. Makes sense. I was a vegetarian very briefly for like maybe three years, but, um, my husband hunts now. And so we, um, have venison during the winter. It was one of my first Montana experiences. Um, I don't know first really, but, we he took me hunting a few times and um some of the times we ate some mushrooms and we're just wandering around in the mountains <laughs> one of the times we um well he sh- shot this deer was he, on he, mu- was, a, he on, was he on mushrooms when he shot the deer not that time no i don't know if he has been on other occasions um but we did drag the carcass uh several miles out of the mountains um as night fell and we were in wildcat country so it was very um scary and a situation i never thought i would be in since i'm originally from boston okay so wait who the uh, hell did how you, did i get here I was gonna say, who did you marry like uh, grizzly adams <laughs> um he's pretty hardcore i'm not gonna lie um my husband's a carpenter he does timber framing which is like an kind of old school artisanal building technique and then he builds furniture he does um, traditional full builds. Uh, he does it all. He uses reclaimed materials, um, See, energy efficient he, stuff. But he's, 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 he's my height, so he's like five five, and he's completely ripped. It's amazing. He can. He's like an ant. He can lift, you know, three times his body weight. I guess ants can lift ten times. But, I was just know. gonna say, like, I feel like <laughs> I feel diminished by that description. <laughs> I feel like you married a real man, and uh, I have, you know, uh, some weak combination of testosterone and estrogen flowing through my. Oh, whatever. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's an example of regionalism because he's super into Montana, so it just like goes with the territory. Well, you know, but this is the thing because I went to Colorado and uh, Boulder for college, and uh, oh I, yeah, I'm a very adaptable person in the sense that like whatever environment I find myself in, I will try to act like the people there. You know what I'm saying? Like I'll just try to. That's- I immediately. Seems got, like, yeah. So it seems I, like that's a good attribute of a fiction writer. Maybe, but it's also like I'm sure if I spent like any amount of time in Montana, I would be. I don't know if I'd be hunting and like you know gutting my own deer or anything like that, but I would be more. Be wearing plaid. I would be wearing fleece and be more rugged. I mean, that's how I was in Colorado, but now I'm in LA yeah. and I've softened. I don't know. LA sounds kind of edgy. It you know it has its ed- it definitely has its edges but I mean it like it's it's not like the outdoorsy edge you know what I'm saying yeah 
I feel like people who live in Montana and uh, to a degree Colorado, especially once you get up into the mountains, you know, it's definitely a much more, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a culture, you know, it's mountain culture. Yeah, it's kind of old school and that has its strengths and weaknesses, I think. Um, in some ways, it's like not, it's not participating in the rest of the world in the same way. You know, iPhones got there way later, things like that. But well, and the thing nice. it is, and like I remember, like when I was in college, and I didn't really put maybe as much thought into it as I later did. Like, it, there's something very idyllic about the mountains, especially these like ski town mountain towns, which are kind of like really, really tight, tightly wound cocoons of privilege. <laughs> you know, so it's I, very I, true. I would go to like Telluride and be like, "It's heaven," and it's like, "Yeah, well, no shit." You know, like it's no, yeah. everyone there is like loaded and you know on summer the, camp for, for adults. Right. is what people from Missoula. Yeah, exa- <laughs> exactly. So you know, but then like which is you, cool, but you know, you can only go there for so long. Right. Before, it, it, I don't know. It gets you get bored. Or whatever. Yeah. Well, and then the thing too is that, like, you know, there are the other towns in the mountains that aren't necessarily uh, yeah. so privileged. And I was driving up to Crested Butte a couple of years ago to visit some friends, and you kind of pass through a lot of these towns. And one of the things you forget about the mountains, because, you know, it's so often associated with skiing and everything and that kind of stuff if you're on the outside looking in. But, you know, the Mountain West is rural, and there's, like, a lot of meth up there, and there's just a lot of crazy mm-hmm. people who live up in the mountains. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So. That's, like, there's, you know, militia activity in Idaho, the Idaho Panhandle, things like that while I was living out there. And um, you just get this funny feeling sometimes when you drive through certain towns where everyone like stares you down and they're like, you're not from here. Are you right? You better watch your back. <laughs> you're right. like, okay. Yes. Well, there's yes, a part sir. of, I mean, it's not the mountains, but there's a part of Colorado that just tried to secede from the state up in, they wanted, really? yeah, they wanted they like, I think they probably voted uh, in favor of it, but it has to get, you know, there's a lot of other legislative, what are they call themselves? North Colorado. Really? Yeah. Oh, come on. They could do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like very, I think it's very like, tra- you know, these are people who are traditionalists and they feel like the culture in Denver has gotten too liberal and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there's the, there's that element, that libertarian and then also like the, high, the yeah. highly Christianist element that like sort of hangs out in Colorado Springs and other parts of the Rocky Mountain West. It's fascinating. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of Mormons in in that kind of western Montana um, in that area on the border with Idaho and things. There are a lot of Mormons there for sure. Okay. Well, and I want to ask you how you got there. Um, but before we get there, I want to talk to you about your name, uh, simply, yeah. be, simply because you have four names. And I feel like in literary history, like it's, it's usually like the triplicate, like, you know, there's the, either the first name or the first initial and then the middle name and then the last name. But I don't think yeah. I, like I'm trying to, I was thinking like Edna, Edna, St. Vincent Millay, if you count saint as a word. Oh yeah. True. But hmm. like, are you the first, you're the definitely the first, what do you call it? I don't know. It's really been, you know, my cross to bear for my life. Um, and I, <laughs> because you know, my names don't fit on most, uh, forms, but, um, I, it's actually my maiden name. Um, Worth is my dad's, uh, I guess, stepfather's name. And then Kushan is my mom's name. I dropped the hyphen because having punctuation in your name, I'd like parentheses, but I don't know. A hyphen <laughs> is kind of like messing with the flow there. So, um, yeah, 
people call me Anne sometimes, and I'm not into it. I'm definitely Anne Marie. You're Anne Marie. the face. Yeah. And you said you. So from- I don't know. I haven't really thought about other writers with four names or with three. I just know some people have really snappy names, like uh, Taolin or one of my friends, Jen Gan. She just got it made. Her, her name. Yeah, I have so. hu- I have huge problems. I've talked about this on this show uh, ad nauseum, but I have huge problems with my first name. I feel like it automatically disqualifies me from um, a lot of things. I don't know. I just feel like the name. Why? No, it's cool. Maybe you don't want to talk about it again. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, people can dig through the archives, but I, the the short story is that I feel like the name Brad is the uh, is a cultural signifier for douchebag. Um, mm. in popular culture like it's the name given to like the dumb quarterback or like the annoying guy at the office or whatever and like uh i don't know I've, i feel i feel you have to break the mold i do i need to, i'm trying to change it that's so. what you're doing right so. <laughs> well, i hope so or adding to the tradition who knows but um you just mentioned that you were born in uh what or grazed in massachusetts is that right uh, I was born there, and I went to elementary school there, and then I went to middle school and high school in Iowa. Okay. Uh, so my parents were in my parents are were in graduate school when I was born, um, on the floor in a one bedroom apartment. <laughs> and wait, you were uh, born you were born on the floor? I was born on the floor. Yeah, not that that's, but I do kind of think there's something in you know maybe the story you tell yourself about your own life. So I always in my mind I start with that okay so wait, so wait. <laughs> like accidentally born or a planned home no birth? purposely okay yeah it wasn't like you just fell out <laughs> i mean it was the 80s my parents were aren't hippies per se they're but you know okay they did have i want to talk about this for a second one of my yeah. be- one of my best friends from college he and his wife uh did a home birth in boulder uh, in a kiddie pool <laughs> Like, oh, this, this sounds like the most horrific. I can see that. Oh no, water no. helps. I know water helps, but all I got to say is like I've I've witnessed childbirth on uh, two occasions. One of which was my own child. Another time, uh, I was actually in college in film school filming a birth for a project, and wow. uh, this is a major medical event <laughs> that belongs in a hospital. <laughs> In my opinion, disagree. <laughs> you disagree. You think you, 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 I guess your husband will probably deliver the child if you guys have children or do you, you guys do have a child. We do have a child and he did not deliver her, but, okay. um, I don't know. I think it depends, I guess, but I'm, I'm astounded. I people pathologize labor or make it seem like a problem. For example, I was denied uh, health insurance when I got pregnant for a pre-existing condition, which is like making it like a disease, which it's not a disease. That's bullshit. It happens all the time. So I, I had a great experience. Now, were, so, you, were you at home? <laughs> no, I was at a very little birth center, but I got the basement room. I got the crappy room. It all worked out all right, though, in the end. It made no difference. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, maybe I'm over. Maybe I'm over. Uh, I agree, though, for certain. It depends on the person. My friend was like, yeah, it was 36 hours. I was like siphoning dirty water. <laughs> oh, my God. It just sounded awful. It just sounded well, awful. Well, yeah. There's something about kiddie pools in and of themselves. They're just, right. you know. I don't know. You don't think new life. You think, I don't know, natty ice. But like, what about, what about, like, so you would have gone to a hospital, but they wouldn't give you health insurance. Or did you not want to do Oh, no. I, then I did get some. Oh, you did? But... Uh, yeah, through the Obamacare. Okay. 
So that was that was a load off, but I still would I did the whole birth or excuse me birth center just because it was my preference. It was your preference, okay? And it was cool. It worked out. Seven hours. It's not bad. <laughs> That's not bad. Yeah, you lucked out. I was we were like twenty one or something, but. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, anyway, yeah, anyway. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Before we get too deep into like a childbirth. <laughs> yeah, we know uh, everyone out there wants to hear the dirty <laughs> details. I am, but I, am, I have to say I'm fascinated by the fact that you were born on a floor in uh, Boston. Was it Boston? Uh, yes, in Boston. And so you're, and- you're born uh, to a couple of graduate student, uh, not hippies, but certainly uh, progressive in their birthing choices. Uh, yep. And so, uh, what kind of like uh, your parents are academics? Like, what are they writerly people? Uh, yeah, um, they're sociologists, and um, my dad does. Uh, he's in administration now, basically. Um, they sent me to a Sufi school when I was little, which I think was is another one of those things I like to tell myself about myself. Okay, what is uh, that? Called the Hollow Read. The Sufis are um, a mystical sect of Islam. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we did largely, it was about kind of like um, universal, uh, we did universal worship every day. We learned about different religions. So it was kind of more of a Unitarian model than I think true um, Sufism. But it was still a cool school and, you know, I only went there until I started first grade, but I have lots of vivid memories, more vivid than my memories of, say, middle school and the public school system in Iowa. So, um, But anyway, then we moved to Iowa. Uh, I felt scandalized by everyone's Midwesternness. And <laughs> okay, so wait, <laughs> let's press pause for a second. What, uh, what, yeah. pers- what precipitated the move to Iowa? Um, the thrilling... Uh, facts of academic life, my mom got a job at Drake University in Iowa, and so we um, took our little Volkswagen rabbit diesel in, and a big rider truck and headed out to the Midwest. And you're, where, an, and you're an only child? Yep. Okay. From a Sufi school. It's funny, I just talked to Monica Drake, and she also, in her, in her early youth, went to some sort of like really cool progressive school that was like formative, and then after that found herself in uh, more traditional schools, which were uh, displeasing. So it sounds like you had a similar experience. Uh, yeah, I have this very vivid memory of one of my first days in public school when I started in Boston. And uh, everyone knew the Pledge of Allegiance, but I didn't. And I didn't want to say it really. So there's this whole conflict for a while because my dad told me, you don't have to <laughs> do it. You can sit out, you know. But it was really like one of those moments where you kind of get your herd mentality on and just do it in order to not be a spectacle or something. But I had a very harsh teacher, Mrs. Walsh, who, you know, gave me a little bit of a stern talking to for not knowing the words already. And How, how old were you? Why. Uh, I don't know, seven. Okay. So. See, because like I think about the Pledge of Allegiance too, and it's like, what the fuck is that? Like, I pledge I allegiance. Can't even say it anymore. I don't know. Well, we had to say it growing up, and like, you know, because I understand, I, I can understand the perspective of somebody who 
has gone off and like fought in wars to protect this country or something, having a finding real meaning in it. And I don't want to like sound, I don't want to poo poo it too much, but there's, I pledge allegiance. It sounds a little bit Orwellian to me. Like I yeah. like, I like the idea of being like, you know, like I honor the values that this flag stands for and like actually enumerate. Although <laughs> the good thing about the Orwellian mo- model is that you can rebel. Whereas if it's just like, you feel this inside, don't you? You just, it's, it's from within. It's your choice. It's not us <laughs> forcing you. Then you can't really like, you can't do anything about it because you're supposed to want it too. And it gets kind of muddled, I think. So yeah. I don't know. Okay. At least there I could feel ostracized and know that there was some conflict. So even at seven, you were a rebel? I don't know if I'm a rebel, but no. <laughs> possibly. It depends on who you ask. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, were you like a, were you a troublemaking kid? Why, no. <laughs> I am not a troublemaker. I um, don't get caught. <laughs> so, so you are, but you don't get caught? I think that's probably true in most ways but uh we shouldn't go there too much okay okay so <laughs> but as a child as a child growing as, a, up, as a child i was not a troublemaker no. you were not we i did, did a lot of ballet oh you did okay and then uh social friends yes i um had many friends even when you moved and, to, even when you moved to iowa like you assimilated yeah, effortlessly i i have a he really fantastic group of um girlfriends from iowa who are all like artists and um intellectuals and doing all kinds of cool things um so i lucked out i don't think that's most people's story from high school but i happened to land in the right year in the right place so what's what city what city is drake university in forgive me for not knowing des moines oh it is okay so you were i think it's Des Moines is one of the insurance capitals of America or something like that. That's but not, I had a friend. My friends love Des Moines and I, I don't. So, you know. So they stayed? Um, no, a few of them have gone back, but no one stayed. So. Meaning, meaning they left when college rolled around kind of thing? Or they split yeah, okay. for the most part. And, uh, again, we didn't get caught. <laughs> Didn't get caught doing what? <laughs> I don't know. Being high schoolers. Okay, I just I didn't mean. Have you committed <laughs> a caught on the roof? Have and you committed a crime in mean, class? Okay. So I guess we got caught sometimes, but it was. But you you didn't do anything like spectacularly bad. It was just normal teenage stuff. No, normal teenage stuff. Okay, you didn't like rob a bank or something. Well, if I had, I really <laughs> couldn't tell you. All right. Although I suppose the statute of limitations would have run out on that one by now. Yeah, you'd be fine. You can tell me. <laughs> um, all right. So something mystery, though, you know. Say again. Something has to be, you know, a little mysterious. Yeah, you don't want to disclose. Can't divulge everything; otherwise, it'll be boring. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, Iowa, and the fact that you left Iowa, you have no desire to once again live in Iowa. I spent the second half of my youth in Indiana. I feel like there's some sort of similarity, uh, if not, if, if not, if it's even if it's just that they both begin with I. But I mean, Iowa, Indiana. There's something mildly interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a similar experience where, like, I you know, I have fond memories. I have a lot of great friends from uh, those years, but I can't see myself back there. 
Like, do no. you look back on the fact that you were raised in the Midwest and or do you feel fortunate that you were in some way? Um, I don't feel one way or the other. I think there are benefits to all kinds of places. I know a lot of people are into family values and things in the Midwest, but um, I think that there are good people everywhere. So I don't know that I feel fortunate specifically, but you do, it sounds like. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just wondering. I think I'm trying to find my answer by hearing what you have to say. Yeah. Uh, I think that I think I will say this. I think that broadly speaking, people are really nice and laid back or I don't know if laid back is the right uh, way to put it. But there's a kindness and a good naturedness to the Midwestern people that I can appreciate um, and that I can notice. There's a little sinister undercurrent, although that's what I find in most places, um, though, (laughs) (laughs) which is a little bit of like um, conformity or a sense of self-control that is a little bit like imposed on you from uh, passive aggressive behaviors of those around you. So I find some of that in the Midwest too, yeah. which I don't like so much. Well, I've, and I've had that same, I've, cause like, this is the thing too, is that I'm, I, I will very easily fall into like these uh, simplistic modes of thinking where I'm like, everyone in Minnesota is just nice. You know? Yeah. And uh, my folks are from the South. And so we'll go down there and I'll just be like, you know what? It's so easy to socialize with people down here. Like people just have their neighbors over for a mint julep and it's just so easy. And then, you know, but the thing about it is that like, yeah, there is that like level of politesse or is that the way to pronounce it? Politesse. Politesse. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, there, there is that down there. People do have certain social graces and, there's a certain formality to the way uh, people present themselves, but also like an ease with which they host one another, <laughs> if mm-hmm. that makes sense. But, yeah. you know, there's also, uh, there's also, just like you said, there can be an undercurrent of dysfunction right beneath that kind of smiley mm-hmm. southern surface. And, you know, uh, I guess that's been mined in gothic southern literature, but... For some reason, I find myself able to look the other way and forget about that while I'm trying to trying desperately to uh, imagine the ideal place, which I don't think yeah. exists. That's kind of just to do a little bit of shameless self-promotion here. Um, one of the things I was thinking about with this book, nothing just um, in that people think of Montana, kind of like how we were talking about it as this idyllic place, the last best place and whatnot. Um, but I think that some of that really is just the fantasy that we all have about something when we're not actually in it. And it kind of gives us like some comfort or something. And I, and I think that it's not a bad thing, but most of that is just us imagining um, something that's still like untainted and, you know, innocent or perfect out there. And we can kind of like think about it as, something that we could get back to um, when really I think it's something we've made up. So what is your ideal environment? Do you have a, I mean, is that, you sound like someone who's like, whatever, they're all, you know, all places have good people. I could live anywhere and find my way. Like, or do you have like yeah. a city or a place on earth where you're like, that's my spot? Um, I don't, I went to this oovy groovy uh, masseuse in Missoula who told me you don't care where you live and while you know there's you know you don't have to take everything that a masseuse tells you at face value I think there's some truth to that I could live 
in the middle of nowhere, super northwestern Montana, Lincoln County, where um, there's nothing, basically, but fantastically um, sublime mountains, or in New York City, um, I think I could be happy in different places. Although, after marrying my husband, I think I've changed, and I do appreciate being able to see the horizon and being able to um, be near water, things like that, which uh, I didn't really care about as much before. What about you? Are you you live in LA, so I don't even know what LA is like. It must is it? A, it it's like everywhere else. It just are has, there natural features in LA? Yeah, <laughs> it's got it's got worse traffic and better weather. It's but it's basically. Yeah. I think people make you know you can make too much of it. There's a lot of normal, at least semi-normal people here. Um, I like it. I don't know. I like it here. Yeah. I, I love uh, I love that the weather's always nice, and I love. Uh, there's mountains, there's desert, there's ocean. It's beautiful. There's a reason why there's like too many people here, you know. And there's a lot going on, yeah. And, and, and there are many people. So. A, the culture, a lot of the culture is made here, which interests me. There's a lot. I mean, you know, there's a lot of uh, depressing stuff too. There's a lot of crazy people and homeless people, and you know, that's sort of uh, I think a part of city life. But it's especially bad here. It feels like so. Yeah, I don't know, but it's a it's a it's kind of a zoo, and I live in the middle of it, and um, I have for like twelve years. So we'll see how long it goes. That's uh, cool. So yeah, how did you guys wind up in Minneapolis? Was it just a job, or did you like? Uh, I'm a PhD student in English literature, so we moved for that. So you're going full. You're going the full. Academic. Yeah, that's it. Seems like it. <laughs> that was a game time decision, and. Um, <laughs> I'm just going with it for now. So. Okay. But I mean, like the idea is that you'll teach and then eventually tenure track and then you'll write fiction and that'll be the, the twin yeah. engine. Yeah. Those two, I would say. I, I like college kids. They're a little bit surly, but not as surly as high schoolers. And um, I want to be able to read and write with my life. So that seems like a... Uh, the English department it seems like a place where that's obviously still happening. Right. Although there's a lot more bureaucracy than I really was willing to admit um, from my waitressing job in Missoula. <laughs> so. Well, but you know, there's not, I mean, in, if you want to write for a, a life, there aren't very many jobs that are as compatible, you know, and, yeah. And and you also, I mean, for all the all the bureaucracy aside, I have to imagine that the bureaucracy at a university pales in comparison to the bureaucracy at like a Fortune 500 corporation or something like that. You know, like yeah. So uh, you know, it sounds that like a sounds too conservative, but I do think there's something, um, some kind of oasis that still exists, although it's getting worked out of the university system. But there's definitely still a little bit of an oasis there for free thinking. And not having to think for profit, basically, and that's important to me. So just being able, cool. just being able to think and read and contemplate. Yeah, yeah, and say things that are um, either don't have like a, an explicit function, or yeah, aren't going to bring a, a crazy profit, um, or might be controversial, and it gives you a space to do that. You know, that's really inter- That's an interesting point, and I think that. It's an under, it's it's hugely undervalued uh, generally, but also I think maybe specifically in American culture where uh, every I mean I guess everybody the world over probably feels squeezed for time, but like we have so little vacation time and we pride ourselves yeah. on working so hard and like 
Yeah. I think that doing nothing and having the space to just relax is way undervalued. Not just like, oh, because it makes you feel good and you get a chance to like sleep an eight hour night, but like because it actually can yield um, benefits and can yield and can lead to creative thinking and can give you time to, um, you know, get well uh, yeah. ment- mentally, emotionally, spiritually in ways that can actually improve your output and your work. And, you know, yeah. But we don't value yeah. that. We don't value that. We don't say, hey, you know what? Everybody should have some time or we should find a way to, I don't know. It's not a sustainable model, I don't think. But I just joined Twitter and immediately my brain just was like suddenly, you know, consumed by this Twitter verse, Twitter universe. I was like, wow, this is crazy. This whole reality is going on around me. And I had no idea. You just start thinking of everything in like tweets. Right. Yeah, no. Tw- I mean, like crazy. I, Twitter is I'm, 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 I'm into it and uh, maybe more so than I would care to admit. It is a writer's medium. Like if, of, yeah. all, of all the social networks, I mean, it's it's made mostly of words, which I think yeah. is part of its appeal. And then like it also is um, a, it's a defined form. Like you have 140 characters right. and, and like that limitation, I think, is appealing to writers because it gives you yeah. something to work against. But uh, you know, like you say, all of a sudden you start thinking in tweets and all of a sudden like you're on the thing like 15 times a day yeah. and uh, your books aren't getting done or whatever. But um, I don't think I'm going to go there, but it's pretty I mean, it's good and bad, you know, because, yeah, like you said, then it's like I I believe in art that's like embedded in what we do on a daily on a daily basis. So a form like that, if people take it seriously and try to do unusual stuff in 140 characters or whatever. That's cool, but I, at the I same agree. time, if you're ignoring your children or, yeah, your other work, um, it's a way that you're being controlled without realizing it. Well, and the thing too is that like it's the it's the Pavlovian response thing with the favorites and the retweets, and so, you know, once you get into that mode where it's about like going and feeding the stray cat so you can get some sort of uh, reciprocity from your followers. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. that yeah. that is what makes it toxic. Like, if you could just turn that off and then just put yeah. stuff out with like without any thought of like what are people thinking about it, I think that would purify it in some way and make it less of a uh, negative, you know, or like it would it would it would, it would work for good and not evil. Yeah, right, it would work less on those like you know weaker parts of your of a person's psyche. But yeah. Um, Anyhow, so to get back to like kind of your biography and and how you got to where you are now, um, you know, you you took us to Des Moines and into your high school life, um, Mm -hmm. where you were well assimilated. You had a a nurturing, cool group of like artistically talented friends. Um, What were you? I mean, were you bookish from a young age, or were you like a cheerleader who secretly read? Or do you know what I'm saying? Like, what was your identity as a young person? Uh Yeah, I've always been, since I was a little munchkin, before I could actually write, I've always been like, I want to be a writer. Um, So I love books. I love the sentence. I love single words. Um, It's my passion. (laughs) And I've always been pretty much known for that, although I did ballet really seriously with this uh, Russian technique, Vaganova, which is what the Bolshoi does. Um, and, uh, I also was really into like visual art and things in high school, but I've always been 
kind of the, the writer in my friend group. Um, yeah. And did your parents, did, you? did you, uh, you know, yeah, I was always the writer. People, my, my yeah. adults in my life always told me like, this is what you should do. Or like, you know, you, have yeah. To, um, but there's also a part of me, um, I was very influenced by comedy as a child, like stand up comedy. Yeah. I had lots of like cassette tapes of like, I mean, at a young age, I was, I remember listening to like Sam Kinison, you know, Stephen Wright was huge yeah. for me, Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin. And you know what I'm saying? Like I was very, very <laughs> into that. And then. Um, which is cool. I can tell just by your voice, which is cool. What? Like tell? you're into comedy. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? My voice? Yeah. Yeah. There's something about it. Okay. I'll take that. It's cool. It's a good, it's a good quality. <laughs> I feel, I feel. I wish I was funny. I feel self-conscious. You are funny. I think you have some funny in you. I don't know. Um, I feel self-conscious of my voice because I worry that it sounds too like inherently DJ, like, or something like that. Like, I don't want to have a. I like I like the idea of having like a good broadcasting voice, but like I don't want to sound too uh, too DJ, you know. Yeah, I um, want to have a smoker's rasp, but yes. nobody smokes anymore, uh, so exactly. I'm fucked. No one does. Smoking really has fallen. I mean, because this is another thing about the Midwest. I don't know if it was this way in Des Moines, but in Indiana, everybody smoked, and to a degree, everybody still yeah. does. Like it's still culturally fine to smoke, but in in California, man, people don't smoke. You know? Yeah. Oh, I bet not. Yeah, I was surprised in Montana when I first got there. Actually, there were like school teachers smoking on the street. I was like, <laughs> "Girl, you smoke?" Yeah, up in no, the mountains, up in the mountains, you can smoke. And in like, in yeah, a, you get that feeling. You you need something. Yeah, a little whiskey, a beer. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, in Los Angeles, people smoke when they're on cocaine or whatever. You know, like there are times, yeah, there are times when they yeah. come out, but it's usually like late at night or whatever. That makes sense. Um, okay, so you graduate with honors from high school. Good student? Yep. Yes, I was a good student. Went to the gifted school, stayed up all night studying, and um, I think got burnt out for college. And then I was, uh, I was over it once I got to college. Did your parents? Um, did your parents drive you? Were they like? Uh, did they make you stay in and study? Like, were they very uh, hands on? No, I would say not really. Uh, they maybe implicitly made me want to work hard, like now also. Um, my parents work super hard, so I feel like if I, because I'm a secret slacker, but I'm trying to, like, bust ass all the time um, so that, you know, I can make my parents proud or whatever. I understand. <laughs> Even though I'm almost, well, I won't tell you how old I am, but well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm older than I once was, and yet I feel that way. So, no, I wouldn't say they necessarily directly pushed me, but I was in this situation at this gifted school and whatnot where you were expected to really make it happen. So. Okay, so a gifted school. How many st – like there are like 10 students? Is it like that? Um, it was like a half-day school called Central Academy. <laughs> um, and you went to your regular high school the other half of the day, um, and you just took lots of AP classes. So you go to the gifted school, and then you go to your other regular high school and just walk the halls like, oh, hey, I'm here for half the day. Yeah. Did you have like an elite status? Did the other students? Um, I think it was kind of a nerd status, but I w was able to kind of sidestep that to a certain extent, partly because of my co group of girlfriends, my cool group of girlfriends, and then also because I wasn't from there. It was this big, I mean, it kind of like gave me a qualitative difference than the rest of the people because I was from Boston and not Iowa. So um, I think that helped me be uh, my own person in that 
setting, not just get pigeonholed as like a Central Academy kid or whatever. So those kids were looked at, looked upon as nerds. Um, some of them. There were definitely the nerdy ones and the and the non-nerdy ones. Because it also has to do with privilege when I look back on it. So some of them were just from wealthy families who had time and resources to read to them and whatnot throughout their lives. And so, but I haven't thought about this in a long time. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been, you know. High school. <laughs> sure. Well, Although that's where, you know, all that, all those interactions in your, your formative years, they really come in when you're writing later, I think. Well, I think so too. And I think like most of the writers that I talk to, that's when, that's when it happens. It's like those adolescent yeah. years in some way or in some ways are formative. Um, I just talked to, uh, Laura Vandenberg and she, we were talking oh. about like this moment of rupture, you know, like that often happens during people's childhoods and, and, um, many times in like adolescence where something traumatic happens or something that sets people on the course to be writers that is not necessarily positive or pleasant. Yeah. You know? And it doesn't sound like you had anything like, did you have anything in your childhood that was like super like heavy that like you think maybe drove you inward or like turned you to books with it to with, um, a, with a degree of intensity that you otherwise might not have done on your own well i have things that happened before i was born that were heavy and um they've influenced me a lot um and so no and yes um but my both of my parents have um, some interesting family history uh, that's had a big impact on me, whether it's just the stories um, or something about, I don't know, the spirit of the family that I think um, is a little bit dark or <laughs> something um, from both sides. So like what, uh, what, I don't understand. I mean, can you, can you elaborate? Or are you? A- um, yeah, my, my, this is kind of like, I don't know if I can elaborate. (laughs) My mom's twin sister committed suicide when I was a baby in a really horrible way. Um, and that has really influenced me a lot. Um, because I'm kind of my mother's other now, uh, in some ways. And, um, my dad's biological father was a very unusual cat. (laughs) Um, and I guess maybe he was psychotic. He was uh, a the heir to the Case Tractor fortune, <laughs> um, and um, he ended up um, dying a violent death. And so I think while it, those didn't things didn't happen to me they really influence my worldview, if that makes sense. No, you know, it does make sense. And I think it's an, it's something that, that goes, uh, underappreciated in much the same way, um, that what we were talking about earlier, you know, kind of goes unsaid and underappreciated and God, I'm forgetting what we were talking about. What were we talking about just a, a few minutes ago when I said, this doesn't get You were talking. saying that sometimes people have rup- a rupture in their lives in their life that um, causes them to be writers, that? No, it was before then, but it doesn't matter. The point is that, uh, you know, these things that happen in our family histories, whether it's our grandparents yeah. or uh, it can be even further down the line. I believe very much that these things get passed to us. 
Um, yeah. Not necessarily through some fault of our parents or like, you know, it's them share, like, you know, unloading their pain on us. No. But like we carry uh, our ancestors in our bodies. You know what I'm saying? We're, con- yeah. we're continuations of them in a real way. And like, I don't think that it's, uh, you know, uh, um, I don't think it's too much to say that those things would influence you, even though they happened prior to your birth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. I uh, agree, of course, since it's my life. <laughs> sure, but, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So where did you go to college? I went to McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh, and uh, so that you know I had town. wanted to go. Pardon? I said, so you know your town. You know this town already. I know this town. Yeah. I came back. <laughs> I left with uh, my little Jetta crammed full of all my shit. And I was... <laughs> Uh, smoking a bowl, a, a bowl all the way down Highway 12 to Montana, and I came back with a book deal, a baby, a husband, and a trailer full of, like, I don't know, housewares. So I'm like, okay, something Life, happened. It all happens <laughs> fast. Yeah, it does. So, okay, so, um, co- like, college years at McAllister, uh, you know, English major, like that kind of I thing? was an English major, yes. Pot um, smoker? It sounds like you were a pot smoker. <laughs> yeah, I, some of that... I waited tables, so there was some nightlife happening, and um, my boyfriend in college is a musician, Nick Africano. Um, Wait, that's his name? Yeah, Nick Africano. Okay. He lives in New York, but um, I, you know, dated a man twice my age, did some of those things. Um, wait, 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 off wait. my stop, bucket stop. list. <laughs> you, 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 date, you dated a man twice your age in college? Yeah, it didn't really work out. When I think about it, I'm like, hmm, not a good, not a good move, Anne Marie. But it seemed, it seemed romantic or something at the time. It was short lived. Okay, I was going to say he was, was, he was a chef. Okay, well, yeah, restaurants. You know? Hey, listen, if you work in restaurants, uh, I have, I have things a friend. Happen. Yeah, things happen, especially if there's like a bar attached. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So um, I wrote a novella there, which I think sucks, and I hope to never look at it again. But uh, <laughs> it was a good learning experience for me. So these were and, these were your apprentice years, essentially. Yes. I, although I I think I'm still an apprentice, or will be for the rest of my life. Um, when I think about how much work there is out there, how much there is to read. You know, that seems like a, like a humble, like, you know, there's like humility in that. That seems healthy. I don't know that view, (laughs) but I, and I also feel like, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like these years, uh, in college, it sounds like you got a lot of good stuff to write about. Like you, it sounds like I'm guessing, and you can tell me if this is true, but I'm guessing that you weren't, you know, cause you, you did your like years of being like kind of like a goody two shoes, hyper, um, focused student when you were in high school and then you got to college yeah. and it was like, I like English. I'm going to keep reading these books, but I'm going to work at this restaurant. I'm going to smoke pot. I'm going to date this guy who's 40 and I'm going to, yeah. ga- I'm going to gather life experiences for my future literary works. Was that an explicit thought? I in definitely your mind? had almost that kind of like attitude, I think in the back of my mind, which I think is a little bit dorky of like, but I, you know, I'm going to gather experiences for no. my future writing. I don't know if it was explicit to myself, but I definitely think that was back there. No, it's common. I had the same With, thing. You have like a romantic, yeah. you have a romantic view of yourself and you have a romantic view of life, which I don't think is, 
there's something about me that uh, there's a part of me that wishes I still had more of that, you know? Yeah. I think it, it fades as you get a little bit older or it's harder to kind of, it's harder to generate and feel like authentic about it without feeling like silly or something. I don't know. Yeah. But learned experience. I think it helps writing though. I've been thinking about that with like, um, like British lit from the 19th century. Some of the female writers, their books just like hit harder to me somehow because I think they were more in the nitty gritty in certain instances, raising children, taking care of their families. Um, so some of their concepts I think are, um, expressed more eloquently because they have those experiences. Also, they're not just at a desk. So I do believe in that for literature, you need to have some life. And it's not only idealism, it's kind of like an artistic principle or something. I, 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 I kind of agree with that. I think you have to, I mean, it's not an, it's really hard unless maybe you're working in some sort of like strictly fantastical fantasy realm to, but even then, I just think it's hard to produce good work unless you're actually kind of immersed in life as opposed to just like cloistered and isolated and you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So how did you get to, you went to Montana to get your MFA? Yes. And, and dro drove out there in your Jetta, just like yep. a single gal going out west. <laughs> yep. Gonna find me. I let that car die, unfortunately, <laughs> by the side of the road. And by the way, like, why does every? I feel like every girl drives a Jetta at some point. It seems like uh -huh. one of those. It seems like one of those cars that girls drive. Like if I was. But a, in high school, I drove a Cabriolet, which is way cooler. Well, the, the Cabriolet <laughs> is the hot girl car. Like that was oh. the hot, like the, the 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 convertible Cabriolet Volkswagen. Sweet. Like you have well, I did win best dressed well, in high school, but I wanted to win best car. And now I now I have a theory that like the upwardly mobile, like well married, hot women in Los Angeles anyway, they all drive Land Rovers because they have children, and it's like that's like yeah. the, it's the car of like the well married hot woman with children. They should still be driving convertibles. I don't know. I really believe in convertibles. Yeah, they want like, you know, like, let's look at me with my like expensive SUV, like to protect my brood or I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's definitely, yeah. it's definitely a thing. Like I notice it. Um, so tell me about your experience at Montana. Good experience? Um, it was decent. Uh, I you met my prefer guy to work independently. So I didn't like seek out a ton of um, mentorship. And I think that was good because. The, um, I had a really great mentor in um, Dee McNamer um, and a fantastic class. We were really uh, supportive of each other, and people were doing all kinds of wild, crazy, different kinds of work. Um, but I think that I had an unusual experience in that um, there wasn't competition in a snarky way. There was excitement and support. Um, so that was great most everyone left after they graduated and i stayed um so got a little lonely towards the end until, until you met uh, macgyver what's your husband's name ben ben okay i feel like he's macgyver i'm gonna tell him you called him macgyver <laughs> that's and i mean that as a compliment i don't even know what he's gonna do <laughs> he might come kill me with his bare hands i know you never know uh but no, that's cool. So how did you, and you guys just met like somewhere around Missoula out and you said, uh, yeah, well, I met him when I was 18 actually in, um, Henry West's ethics class at McAllister college. And I had a little crush on him, but I didn't really know him. He hung out with like some, a different crowd 
And then I ran into him six or seven years later. Um, he was smoking a cigarette in front of the Golden Rose Liquor Lounge and Casino God, this on guy is, Broadway this... in Missoula. What a man. And I was like, hey, Ben. And um, then four months later, we were engaged. Wow. So, so that the, was... a whirlwind romance. Yeah, it was a whirlwind. Okay. So let me ask you a question because you alluded to this earlier. And yeah. I, don't, I don't mean this. I want to make sure that at the outset I, I let you know that I don't mean this. Um, in a tawdry way, or tawdry isn't even okay. the word, but I, I, I asked this question in earnest because I think it's something that is okay. um, totally relevant to the you arts. You make me nervous here. <laughs> no. Okay. I just think that like it's a question about drug use, and I think that these questions, and in yeah. particular psychedelics, because I think in, these things can easily be kind of pushed to the side and like you know uh, pointed at as trifles or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, it sounds like you've experimented with these things. I think if you're out in the Rocky Mountain West, like that's a good place i think there's maybe a more permissive culture towards uh those kinds of experiences and things and i'm familiar that with that having lived in boulder but um do you did you have you ever had any like psychedelic experiences that you feel like were formative creatively or do you look at those things as being instructive in any way or is it pure just like Mm -hmm. hedonism um i think that i haven't tripped that many times but the times i have have been really helpful um for me for yeah as a writer and just um as a human thinking about (laughs) the nature of reality frankly but the first time was in college actually in my horrible um whatever they are cement block dorm rooms um and i was thinking about like the word and how you know the word is small but indicates this whole like universe of things beyond itself uh and it sounds super hokey thinking about it now, but it really did um, change the way I think about language or maybe just gave me an explicit understanding of what I already thought. Um, But out in, you know, Missoula, there's definitely, I would say, more explicit, like, use of mainly just mushrooms because it's kind of a natural culture or they people have a relationship with nature so it makes sense that the plant version would be popular sure. and i think people use it to party but they also use it you know more seriously um i went to this cool party one time or kind of cool it's kind of scary this burn party that our friend had this wild man <laughs> um who had this piece of property and he got a burn permit and a grant to do some thinning and so um People were eating mushrooms and drinking whiskey. I've mentioned this elsewhere, but, um, and lighting this whole mountainside on fire. And, um, that was definitely one of the cooler experiences of my life, uh, just because you're riding the edge, um, really, because you're starting a forest fire, basically, (laughs) and in other ways, too. But, oh my God. But I definitely think it's, you know, helps people think about their place in the world if you don't have as long as you don't have a bad trip but i'm not someone who really has you know some people have tons of experience with these things but which you know i don't know if quantity is necessarily better but yeah i was gonna say might might want to be like just pick your moments like i'm not i'm not an advocate for like chronic use or anything but uh, yeah, I, I do think of all drugs, um, the psychedelics are the ones that 
bear um, or should bear more examination as being useful. Yeah, I think. Yeah, you know, I think those experiences, mm-hmm. like not just like creatively, but just on a human level, like I find them fascinating. I wish I had more courage in my older years to. It, yeah. and, and frankly, more free time. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. feel, I feel like I would need to carve out a weekend somehow in the desert or something, but, um, I'm, you know, with, I've been thinking that lately. I'm like, I need a vision quest. <laughs> something like that, you know, like maybe yeah. it would be, they would, you know, foment some kind of breakthrough or whatever, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I use vision quest semi ironically, but you know, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I use it literally. I think it's, I think, I think yeah. it's possible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now you're, uh, you're in print, you're published. Uh, does it feel like you thought it would? Um, I don't know what I thought it would feel like, but it feels right. I guess in the sense that it feels like normal (laughs) or it feels like part of me and, um, is it what you you expected this? You were, you were never doubted that you were going to wind up as a published novelist. I doubted it, which is partly how I ended up in a PhD program, but um, I've always wanted to, uh, not like for fame and glory, but just to share my ideas in some way with other people. Um, I hope that's not narcissistic, but Wait, what, what do you want to share? Just my ideas and my, you know, relationship with language as hokey as that sounds but truly i think that sounds nice but um so i love two dollar radio they're cool and yeah how did you how did you uh, yeah how did you wind up with two dollar radio i think i had an unheard of experience in that i sent them um for 50 pages kind of on a whim, not on a whim, but they were like the small press that I knew about. And I really, I like, you know, their $2 radio books too loud to ignore. When I saw that, when I was reading the each each creeps, I was like, cool. That is so what I want to be, you know? So I just sent it to them and, um, realized actually to bring it back to Iowa. Um, one of my friends, more, who I didn't know super well from high school, actually, if it does, I'll go back to high school, w- was working there as an editor. So I contacted her, and um, they uh, accepted my manuscript, which was um, awesome. I couldn't believe the first place I sent it to took it. But there you go. I think it's the, the right press for the project, and um, they're doing exciting stuff with their micro-budget film vision and things. So I'm excited to be working with them. Are you going to participate in that? Do you find do you see yourself making films also, or is it strictly books? I would love to, but I haven't talked to Eric about it yet. So uh, Eric Fernoff, the editor there, but um, wait, you said Eric o- Eric think... Obanoff. You're breaking up a little bit just to make sure people can can hear it. Oh, Eric. yep, yep. That's what I said. Sorry. That's okay. I'll, uh, can you hear me fine now? Yeah, you sound great. Okay. Um. Anyway, I'd love to. I think nothing is the book that's coming out today. Uh, I think it would make a fun film. So we'll see what happens. Well, and then going down the road, I mean, we kind of uh, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's it's an academic career, um, uh, a growing family, perhaps, and then also uh, more books. Yes. Are you are you working? On, are you working? Sure. On, are you working on something right now? 
I am. I'm working on, I had kind of set out to write a trilogy. <laughs> and so I've started the second, the prequel. Um, so I need to do a lot more research because it's set in the 70s. So I'm thinking about possibly doing my dissertation research on the 70s and the Back to Land movement in Montana and um, the politics and um, economic policy and things of the 70s. Um, so I can really do that period justice. Uh, are you are you are you are you a hippie at all? Like, do you have an, a strain of that in you, or is it just something? Are you? Fat? I have a I have a strain of B in me, yeah, but it's not dominant. It's it coexists with many other um, strains that are in conflict with hippiness. Okay, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. <laughs> it's one of my many flaws. I have too many sides, but um, maybe the hippie side will like find some expression in this um, '70s text if i if i can do a good job with it all right well i wish you luck it sounds like an interesting project and i congratulate you on the uh, publication of nothing and on, thank you and on being the first uh, four named writer that i've had the pleasure of speaking with on this program oh yeah it's a mark of well, distinction <laughs> we'll see thanks for uh, talking with me and um yeah maybe we'll be in touch again <laughs> All right, you guys, there you go. That's Anne-Marie Worth-Cushon. Go get her novel. It's called Nothing, and it is available now from $2 Radio. You can find her online on the Facebook, I believe, and she's also uh, available over at $2Radio.com. Actually, I don't know if she's available, but you should check out $2Radio.com. I'm sure they have something on their website about her and her new novel. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And, uh, oh, yeah, thanks to Tom Waits. I did use the uh, opening notes to the song Come On Up to the House uh, right there at the top of the interview. And uh, that song is uh, off of the album Mule Variations. Mule Variations. It's a great album. Go get it if you don't have it. And, hey, uh, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the very best way to listen to this show and is also the best way to access premium content and the show's full archives. So go get the app. Download it. The app itself is free. Uh, okay. Otherwise, you know, i got to figure myself out creatively. I understand that. Uh, I know that I've been vocal lately about this gray area in my life. I recognize that it's a problem. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, maybe I just need to accept the fact that I exist at some sort of strange intersection of interests. And maybe this is my thing. Uh, maybe this is it. I make these strange uh, audio presentations for people. You know, or maybe I'm just uh, lazy. <laughs> that could be it, too. Please remember that Stanley Kunitz delivered the eulogy at Mark Rothko's funeral and that the first time the word shit appeared in the New Yorker, it was in a direct quotation uh, of Richard Nixon. That is it for now. Thanks for being here. Thanks again to Anne-Marie Worth-Cushon. Go get her novel. It's called Nothing. Go get some nothing. And then uh, do something. How's that for a pair of seemingly conflicting messages? But of course, uh, to get nothing in this context would in fact constitute doing something, if you know what I mean. And at me, I just want to do something creative with my life. I want to make a meaningful body of work that is useful to those who find it, or at least to some of those who find it. And I think uh, right now, currently, I would like to write a book about a person struggling to meditate <laughs> somehow. 
Like, that's the whole book. That's my concept. One man's uh, disastrous internal monologue while he tries to meditate for approximately 20 minutes. What do you think? Would you read that? (laughs) 